Welcome to another episode of B-School, a living case study in aligned action. I'm your host, Taylor Elise Morrison, speaker, facilitator, and founder of Inner Workout. B-School is a personal development podcast for collective change. So join me in becoming a student of yourself and the world around you. Let's get studying. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of B-School. As always, I am so glad that you are here. And today I have a guest. We've got Dr. Devin Price, who is a social psychologist, a writer, an activist, a professor at Loyola University of Chicago, and the author of Laziness Does Not Exist. The title hooked me in. I actually originally heard Devin on another podcast, and once I heard what they had to say, I wanted to see if they'd be willing to have a conversation with me, and I'm so lucky that they did. So, Devin. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's always so nice to make another Chicago acquaintance who cares about this stuff too. Yeah, it's cool. It's weird. Like during the pandemic, I feel like I've been meeting people from Chicago that I wouldn't have crossed paths with otherwise. And so that's been really cool. I'm like, oh, there are all these other people and maybe one day I'll I'll get to see them, not through a screen. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I've talked to so many people on social media and then I've done interviews for the book. And so I have no sense of place and time anymore. (laughs) So I even forget who I know that actually lives here versus who's in like New York or New Zealand or whatever else. Yeah. Everyone's just in a square now. So it's like, it doesn't matter where you are. So we mentioned your book, Laziness Does Not Exist. And I was so drawn to the title. I was drawn when I heard you on this other interview. And honestly, The entire book felt like it was calling me out as someone who has like workaholic tendencies and has been trained to achieve and be excellent all the time. But it wasn't a call out in a mean way. It was this loving, kind invitation to a different way of being. I really appreciated how you surfaced some of my unhealthy mindsets around work and rest and laziness. And even though I do a lot of work around self-care and personal development for collective change. And I thought that I had decolonized or deprogrammed a lot of places. I realized that there were still some lies that were there and were affecting how I acted. So I'm, I'm just wondering if you would be willing to give listeners an overview of some of the beliefs that make up this laziness lie. Sure. Yeah. So in the book, I talk about how our relationship to work and consent and listening to our bodies and limitations is really distorted and how that distortion has these really pervasive cultural roots and historical roots. And the way I kind of handily refer to that is by talking about the laziness lie. So the laziness lie, as I conceptualize it, has three major tenets. And the first is that your worth is defined by your productivity. The second is that you can't trust any feelings of need or limitations that you have. If you're feeling tired, you need to just push that away because it's a barrier to your productivity. And then the third tenet of the laziness lie is that there's always more that you could be doing. So even if you are working 80-hour work weeks, are you doing enough activism? Are you exercising enough? Are you doing enough emotional labor for your friends? There's all these realms of life where we're made to feel inadequate but they all have the same root, which is capitalism, enslavement, and the 
the ideologies that we've used in America to justify those things. Thank you for giving that overview. And the one that probably hit me the hardest of the the three pieces of the laziness lie was that piece of there's always something more that you can be doing. Because like you mentioned with activism, like I'm doing something for others. Of course, that can be a good thing, but it's not if I'm trying to grow a business and trying to be somewhat of a good partner and all of these other pieces and also trying to volunteer for a million organizations, which is part of what happened to me. Um, A big piece of my journey was in 2017 when I was getting married and I was working for a startup and I was also doing a side hustle. And I also was volunteering for multiple organizations because I felt like, of course, I need to keep doing more and more and more. And spoiler alert, that does not turn out well, which I know that you know from experience. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's really motivated by a lot of toxic messages we internalize that systemic problems need to be fixed by individuals, even though that isn't really possible. We can't white knuckle our way through fighting these things on an individual level. And I think when we put too much pressure on ourselves to do everything as individuals, that's when you get really stuck in that kind of sense of urgency and perfectionism that just isn't sustainable. And I know at least for me, when I'm driven by that sense, that's when I do the activism that isn't very effective anyway. You know, just what can I do right now to satisfy my anxiety and make myself feel like a good person versus what can I invest in in the long term that is generative and that is part of a community effort and that is good for me as well as good for everyone around me. Yeah, I really appreciate that reframe because it almost when we are so focused on the urgency, even though we're doing for others, it's, I think of, this is a whole other framework that I I don't totally want to bring in, but I, I think of instances where an example that I've heard before is like at a children's hospital where you're like, I have to do something for these kids at the children's hospital. So I'm going to buy them a bunch of toys, which is great, but only one can, can use each of the toys. And so if you were going to spend that money, you could have asked the hospital or asked the families of the kids, where would that be most useful? But in your hurry to assuage your guilt or your pity for these children, you just do something, you throw something out there without it actually being effective and not building a long-term relationship with organizations. So I liked that you you pulled that piece out. I want to talk about a line that I had to reread a few times, which is that wasting time is a basic human need. Once we accept that we can stop fearing our inner laziness, then we can begin to build healthy, happy, and well-balanced lives. The first time I read that first piece of wasting time being a basic human need, I had almost a visceral reaction to it. Like, no, I am here to create an impact and I have to leave a legacy and I don't have time to waste. It like really did something in me. And that's kind of what I mentioned before, where there were these unhealthy mindsets that I didn't know that I had. But then when I sat with it a little bit more, it made sense. Like most of the good that I'm able to do is when I give myself space to breathe. And I was especially curious about this idea of inner laziness. When you have a book called Laziness Does Not Exist. I thought that people would be kind of excited about that. Like, okay, I have an out now. This thing that I've been so worried about actually doesn't exist. But 
you said in a lot of the interviews that people were actually telling you, no, laziness does exist because I'm actually a super lazy person. And so I'm curious why you think people are so afraid that they're an undercover secret lazy person. I think part of it is how precarious the world that we live in is, right? That we're in such an economically precarious situation. And many of the people that I spoke to for the book are multiply marginal, marginalized in various ways. So you have a very rational sense of, I need to really look out for myself. I need to go, 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 because if I don't keep up, no one's going to take care of me. So I think sometimes people internalize this idea that I can't trust when I'm tired. I can't trust when I don't feel like doing something. I need to constantly push myself to do more. And we can call that workaholism, which kind of, and I, I do sometimes call it workaholism, but that but it puts the blame on the individual when so often it reflects a very real insecurity and precarity that people really recognize, especially now, you know, with unemployment yeah. and, and wages being what they are. So I think that's part of it. I think also we have this very conflicted relationship to ourselves where we hold ourselves to a higher standard than anyone else, which is both kind of martyring and grandiose and kind of reflects a self-loathing. Mm -hmm. You know, if one of my friends is depressed and they can't get something done, I understand that it's because they're depressed and I have compassion for them. But if I'm depressed, that's not good enough. I need to keep writing. I need to keep sending emails. I need to not let my teaching slip at all. And so many people that I spoke to for this book, when they hear the title, they don't resist it by saying, oh, my neighbor's lazy. My coworker's lazy. It's all about, no, I'm lazy. I really believe that if I don't push myself constantly, I'll just fall into this pit and never recover again. And I think that really reflects how deeply we've had it ingrained in us that we can't trust ourselves. I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, it was really surprising to me. But when I think about it too, I'm not typically, I mean, I'd like to think I'm a compassionate person. I'm not typically pointing at people and saying that they're lazy, but I am doubting myself. I was mentioning before we started recording like I had a really rough night and I needed a nap, but I was like, am I allowed to do that? I only recently in the past year or so started allowing myself to like take naps during the day, even though I've had the flexibility for a long time, I haven't worked a nine to five in a bit, but it was this sense of like, you need to act in these certain ways in order to be a good productive person. And if you want to rest, oh, well, you need to work this many hours and that's just how it goes. So we've got a, a lot of inner work to do. And I'm glad that you're starting conversations like this, that hopefully people can start to realize as they're listening to this and hopefully reading your book after this, what are the pieces that are a little bit prickly for me? Where do I need to get into conversation with myself? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really long process. In this book, I take a lot of inspiration from the eating disorder recovery community and the intuitive eating movement, because that's a movement that's all about telling people, hey, you've been trained not to listen to your body by diet culture, fat phobia, all of these things. Why don't you actually trust that your body has the ability to tell you what it is that you need? And I think we can take the exact same approach to rest and start listening to when we're tired. And instead of immediately arguing with, the urge to take a nap, just accepting, okay, my body's telling me I need a nap. 
and I can actually listen to that. And it's not shameful. It's actually something I should be proud of if I did that inner work to listen. But it's really hard (laughs) to get to that point. It is really hard. And it's hard to where even now that I'm getting more accustomed to allowing myself rest in that way, it was like there are other places where I could totally be in tune with my body, but there was barriers like you cannot take a nap during a weekday. Still seeing how other people perceive that, especially during the pandemic where we've been living with family. And so there's some like, oh, it must, it must be nice that you can take a nap in the middle of the day. And I, I wish that that was something that was more acceptable for everyone. And I guess part of it is, is just honoring what you need and hoping that that gives other people permission to honor what they need. That might be a little too idealistic though. No, I think that's, I think that's true because those little comments that we get from family members or coworkers or friends of, oh, it must be nice to take a nap in the middle of the day. Oh, people with chronic illnesses hear these things all the time, right? Like, oh, it must be so nice to just stay at home all, all the time. People used to say that to people who were at home all the time and they were the only ones who were. Now they don't say that anymore because people understand that that's not a great feeling always. But I do think that when we resist those little barbs and pressures and try to establish a new norm, it does gradually help people break through their own, where their resentment is coming from, because it's not actually you. You know, like if you have the ability to take a nap during the day and someone's jealous of that, you're not actually the problem. You're setting a new norm and you're helping that person think about, well, why don't I have that freedom to look after my needs? Is there anything that I can do so that I could take naps when I need them? Or is there something going on in our economic system where People aren't able to take naps. And I actually wish that everybody had the ability to take naps and seeing that kind of privilege as, oh, this is a a right everyone should have. It's a long fight and it's okay for people to have those feelings of resistance. I think that's a normal part of the process. But the more we claim what we need, I think the more we create a culture where people have the freedom to do that. That's a really beautiful way to look at it. We've talked a lot about your book and by extension, this body of research and work that you've put into it. But your book also reminded me that we're a lot more than our work. And I think it's hard for me, especially because I love what I get to do. And so it's easy for me to over identify with my work. I'm curious if there's an interest or an identity outside of work that's important to you. So we can just get a more holistic picture of who you are. Oh, that's that's such a beautiful and lovely question to to ask because I do talk about that a little bit in the book, but and like I think a really important part of this journey is you know it's not just about like take more breaks so that you can work longer and harder and survive. It's about like figuring out who you really authentically are, and that isn't all work. So I a lot of the things that I enjoy are, are things that are like not very. Um, academic respectability, politics friendly. Like I was going to a lot of like anime conventions before the pandemic hit and I'm really grieving that. And a lot of hyper pop concerts, which are, and hyper pop is this genre that's very like queer and, you know, kind of goth alternative kind of fashion. And, you know, lots of people wearing harnesses and green hair and and makeup that's like intentionally kind of ugly and, and brash. And, and I just, I just miss getting to like go all out and nourish that side of myself. I'm still going to some virtual concerts and, you know, putting on the weird clothes and and harnesses and stuff for, for those, but it doesn't quite hit the same as, 
being in a room with a bunch of sweaty bodies and just like thrashing to music. But that's a really important part of who I am, the nerdy stuff, the alternative stuff, the stuff that doesn't necessarily like look presentable on campus. Thank you for sharing a little bit of that with us. And I, that's something I'm trying to do a little bit more. I, I wish I could remember who first introduced me to this question because it's changed the way I introduce myself to people back in the day when we used to go to networking events. But they asked the question, how do you spend your days? Instead of being like, what do you do? Who do you work for? How do you spend your days? Which can encompass the fact that you like to strength train or that you have a hyper pop concert that you're going to over the weekend and the fact that you're a social psychologist. So that question is something that's helped me be a little bit less focused on people, equating people only with their work output. Yeah, I also love asking people like, what's something, what's a fun fact that you learned recently? Or what's something weird on the internet that you've been like obsessing about that you don't know why you're even reading about it? Like asking people about weird interests they've discovered. It makes people come alive so much more when you're talking to them than asking them what they do for a living. I like that weird interest one. Especially now, I feel like we all have rabbit holes that we've been down recently because there's more time to be on the internet. Um, Bringing it before we get into the lightning questions, something that I'm curious. So as someone who you shared a pretty intense experience that you had with burnout, I won't go all the way into it because I want to encourage people to read your book. But I'm wondering now on the other side of that experience, do you ever feel yourself starting to approach burnout again? And if so, what do you do to, to course correct so you don't fully get back into that place? Yes, I am always battling with this stuff. Like I still have all this laziness lie, achievement hunting architecture in my brain. So I kind of feel like I'm constantly playing whack-a-mole with finding new weird rules that I've set for myself that I have to really notice why do I think this is a rule? Why am I following this? So it can even be things like, why am I forcing myself to work out at least four days a week? Who, what's the law that says that I have to do this? You know, I, I don't have to do this. If it's causing me more anxiety than it is pleasure, why don't I just stop doing it? So that's one thing that I definitely do. I'm kind of always trying to notice new rule sets that I haven't noticed before that I'm kind of letting implicitly guide my life and then really hold them up and look at them and say, like, where did this come from? And usually the answer is like really toxic social messages. I also know that for me, I have to really get better at listening to my body. And that's also a lifelong process and not use some of the relaxation strategies that we often have ingrained in us culturally to use as a crutch. So, you know, for me, weed became legal in Chicago a little bit over a year ago. And even though I, I like it and I would qualify for a medical card for like anxiety and things like that, I've noticed that I shouldn't really use any kind of substance as an anti-anxiety method because I need to listen to when those unpleasant feelings of being really freaked out are starting to pop up. So that's something that I definitely have kind of noticed that if I take away the things that I use to help make it possible to push through a really hard life or a really busy week, if I don't use those things that I would use as a crutch, then I'm forced to really ask ask myself, what can I take out of my week so that I'm not so stressed? Instead of trying to get rid of the stress, 
and treat the anxiety, what can I get rid of that's causing me the stress in the first place, if that makes any sense? Which is, it's very privileged of me to be able to even think that way. A lot of people, you know, you're, you don't have a lot of control over your work schedule. And if you need to, to like smoke or take an edible or have a beer at the end of the day, like that can be totally fine. But for me, I wanted to really just notice when I have those really aversive feelings and say, okay, what can I actually change in my schedule instead of treating the consequence of having an overloaded schedule? Mm. So that's what it looks like for me like right, right now, but it's an ever evolving process for sure. Unlearning this stuff is, is so hard and there's so many external pressures to take on more and say yes to everything. Yeah, it is a lifelong process. And also as soon as you feel, at least I'll speak from my experience, as soon as I start to feel like, okay, I've kind of got this figured out, then there's a new project that pops up or there's a pandemic that pops up or whatever it might be. And then you've got to adjust and figure out, okay, how much capacity do I have right now? What new supports or resources do I need? So it's an ongoing process, an ongoing conversation. Um, Yeah. And the pressure takes on new forms, just as you said. Um, And I think like when the pandemic first started, I certainly was among the people who tried to cope with the uncertainty by feeling like I had control over what I was doing and taking on way too much. I think a lot of us did that. That's why everybody was performatively bread baking. I mean, some people it was therapeutic. Some people it was like, okay, here's a thing I can do that I can be proud of. And that's fine. But I know I was taking on way too many like workshops and meetings and writing, all this stuff to keep the despair at bay. And I had to just actually feel the despair at a certain point because it's normal to be really freaked out and sad right now, you know? So making space for those hard feelings instead of trying to paper them over with work and busyness and accomplishments has also been really important. And I will say that was the other interesting thing about reading your book is it's the first book that I've read that actually speaks to the pandemic because it came out so recently and I don't know when you finished writing it, but it was interesting to hear the overarching idea that laziness doesn't exist and then break down the laziness lie, but see how this pandemic environment really has challenged us to engage with that in ways that we probably wouldn't have had to have these conversations as soon if there wasn't a pandemic to contend with. Yeah. I wrote most of the book before the pandemic happened. And then I was in the last round of edits as it was happening in March. So it really just highlighted how absurd and unsustainable our approach to work is in this country and just our lack of a safety net and how that affects everyone's outlook and and how they set their priorities. So I do hope that this moment is at least a time where people are more and more willing to talk about these problems and really confront how unsustainable all of this stuff is. That doesn't justify that all of this happened. That doesn't make it worth it or anything. But I have seen that people are more and more ready to talk about how we need to do things differently. We need to take care of each other. We need to have a government that takes care of people. Or we need to rethink, we need to fundamentally rethink how we do all of these things so that we can actually have a life that's about living relationships and play and creativity and wasting time instead of about just scrambling to take care of yourself all the time financially. I could not agree more. Thank you for this part of the conversation. Now we'll head into the lightning questions, which are three questions that I ask every guest who comes on the show. You don't have to think about them too much, just whatever pops into your head. 
The first question is kind of similar to the question that you mentioned earlier, which is what's one thing that you've learned that you're excited about? And it can be something super academic or something about one of the anime that you watch. Oh, gosh. So right now I'm working on a book about autism because I'm autistic. And recently... I've been just really struggling the whole time I was writing this book about how do I explain to a neurotypical reader all of the different symptoms that make up what autism is? Because it's so many different things like social anxiety, being sensitive to bright lights, not liking certain textures. It's all this weird tapestry of things. It's so hard to explain to people why they're all related. And I just started reading some neuroscience research that like really finally breaks down for me how to explain to people in a holistic way what autism is and that it's basically about being detail-oriented in your processing, so consuming everything in the world from a bottom-up fashion, Mm -hmm. whereas people who aren't autistic tend to process most of the world from the top down. And that, you know, to fully explain it, I have to break it down more than we have time for here, but it was just this light bulb moment of, oh my gosh, okay, there is a scientific way to explain this thing that also will make sense to the average reader. And it was so exciting to like actually have it all come together. So that's been a big breakthrough. Uh, I hate that my answer is a work-related answer, but that's definitely the thing I'm like super jazzed about right now. It's work-related, but it's also you being able to communicate your lived experience better. So I think it, it counts as both. And that's such a cool, even hearing you paint it with broad brushstrokes, that makes a lot of sense for me thinking about the people in my life who are on the autism spectrum. It's like, oh yeah, I can totally see that. And I was mentioning before, my mom works with a nonprofit and she works with a lot of people who are on this spectrum. So I want to run it by her and see like, does that make sense to you? Where have you seen that? So now you got me on on a whole thing where I want to explore this even more too. Okay. Next question. What are you in the process of unlearning? Oh, gosh. (laughs) I mean, all of the things we've already talked about, um, as much as I've written a book that's about giving people the freedom to say no to things and to to fight for us to not define who we are by what we do, it's something I'm working so hard to unlearn and really put into practice in my own life. I feel like I'm really unlearning a distorted relationship to social media right now, as we all are. And it's really hard because it's our lifeline right now for connection but it is also such a source of stress and social comparison and pressure that I'm putting on myself, especially since I have a book that I'm supposed to quote unquote be marketing and all of those things. So trying to find ways to express myself and connect with people that are about the small individual connections that are private and not the social performance stuff, but still finding a way to scratch that itch, that very human need for attention. Like there's nothing wrong with wanting attention and to be recognized. So finding ways to get those needs met that aren't producing content for a social media site is something that I'm working really hard on right now. And also like trying to find more ways to get like physically grounded. Mm. That's something that's really hard, I think, for everyone because we are just constantly digitally connected right now. Finding ways to kind of feel connected to the earth and spiritual or grounded in reality I'm not sure what that's going to look like for me yet, but I'm definitely exploring that more and more. I completely relate to, especially the social media one. I've been on my whole journey around how I relate to social media. And I think that's another thing of this 
intense being on screens all the time. Again, we realize like, oh, maybe we didn't feel so great on social media in 2019, but by 2021, it's like, oh, this thing is not necessarily good for me and the way that I'm currently relating to it. How do I do it in a way that's still connective, but also preserves my mental health in the process? And I don't know if anyone has the perfect answer for that yet. Yeah, I don't I don't think so. I've started practicing with like setting limits programmed into my phone where I can't open certain apps at certain times to just kind of brute force the self-control I don't actually have and listening to what the need is that underlies the usage, you know? Like am I lonely? Am I looking to do something creative? Is that why I'm posting something? What's another way that I can do that or whatever it is? I love that. And then this last question is my favorite because I don't think people this gets back to some of the pieces of the laziness lie. If you're so focused on, I need to do more, you forget to acknowledge what you've already done. So my question to you is what's one way that you've grown that you're proud of? And I fully encourage you to like brag, celebrate yourself, let us celebrate you as well. Ooh. Um, hmm. I think this year was a really good year for me in looking at and practicing How do I tell people when I really disagree with them, even if I know it's not going to be popular? A lot of things just kind of culminated in my life this past year where I had to, you know, stand up to friends who I thought were going about something in the wrong way or were trying to pressure other people into enacting their activism, for example, in the exact same way that they were doing it and needing to just like really say, okay, I don't think that actually tactically make sense or I don't think we should pressure people into showing up in this way because everybody's at their capacity right now. And I think for a few years in the past, I wasn't always this way, but the past couple of years I was really afraid to always to ever really contradict people or do anything that would demotivate people or kind of like break group cohesion, you know? Maybe just because the post Trump election era felt so dire. And so it was like we need to put up a unified front and like take care of each other. And this was just a big year of kind of noticing that sometimes that's counterproductive and that sometimes I need to say, okay, I I need an explanation for why we're going about this in that way. Or I don't know why we're asking this person to do this thing. I don't know if they're ready to show up in that way. And just coming into my own strength. And sometimes that means just like admitting that I don't understand why something's a goal. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't, I'm not, I'm often not correct about those reservations, but I would, but being able to like air them also has helped me learn and grow. So it's been a really good year in that kind of like vulnerable disagreement and growth and like learning to get more comfortable with healthy conflict. I'm still pretty bad at it, (laughs) but I'm really, I'm proud that I'm like doing it at least because I think it is really important for us to push through it and be willing to say, I disagree. I don't understand. I have questions. That's how we actually connect with people and put up a unified front, not stifling those things. So. I can't think of a better way to close things out. That's a sentiment that I think everyone can learn a little bit from. I am so grateful to have gotten to be in conversation with you. I will link to your book in the show notes. And if people want to hear more of what you have to say and even follow a little bit of your journey of writing your next book, where can they find you? 
Yeah. So my writing is at devonprice.medium.com. So that's D-E-V-O-N-P-R-I-C-E.medium.com. And then on Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff, I'm at Dr. Devin Price. So D-R-D-E-V-O-N-P-R-I-C-E. And hopefully I won't be posting there as much as I have been since I just said that I would be working on that, but people can find me there. Awesome. Well, thank you for being on the show, Devin. Thanks so much for having me, Taylor. Thanks to Andres Rodriguez for the intro and outro music. You can keep in touch with me on Instagram at Taylor Elise Morrison. Elise is E-L-Y-S-E. And check out the resources on my website at taylorelise.com. <laughs>